We are in this series, The King. We did Hosea, Joel, we're in Amos. We are going to spend some, several weeks in Amos. Two weeks ago, in, in Amos chapters 1 and 2, uh, we talked about God's authority to punish. That's a real amen message. Last week in Amos 3, we talked about God's authority to redeem. That's a little more positive. Today, we're going to talk about God's authority to judge. Um, this, this may be my favorite out of Amos so far. Uh, so while you're turning to Amos chapter 3, I can hear the digital devices going. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story. So growing up from time to time, Either myself or one of my siblings, my astute siblings, would be waxing eloquent about how horrible someone else was behaving. I'm sure that your kids would never talk about other people that way, uh, but evidently I did that every once in a while. My, my siblings did that every once in a while when we were kids. So we'd be talking about how horrible somebody else was, and one of my parents would correct our superior attitude with a simple question. You may have done this to your children at some point in time. The question is, while you're going off about how poor somebody else is or how horrible they are or how they're insignificant or insufficient or whatever it is, parent says, who are you to judge? I believe that the desired effect was, from my mom and dad anyway, was that for the head and children to recognize that we were not in a morally superior position to harshly judge those who may not meet our perceived standard of perfection. If only they could be head and And my parents would say, who are you to judge? The question, who are you to judge, was intended to cause us some introspection, right? Who are you to judge? But I also believe it was to get us to hush up as well. Um, When we listen carefully to what is going on in our society, we will hear that our society at large is asking, who are you to judge? They are asking it of the government. They're asking it of people, they're asking, subversely asking it of God. Who is God to judge me? Are you with me so far? Our society. Who is God to judge me? Why should I have to give an account of myself to God? Why does God have authority to judge me? Because I can have whatever opinion I want, and I can publish it on Facebook, and you just have to take it for what it's worth. (laughs) And nobody has authority to judge my thoughts, comments, my lifestyle. Who are you to judge me? Who is God to judge me? So in chapter 4 of Amos, we are going to see Israel's sin described again. It's a real amen message. And we're also going to see how God is going to judge. And we're we're going to see that God is uniquely holy. Everyone say holy. holy. He is holy, set apart from all other beings to judge and to punish sinful mankind. Here's my premise this morning. It's in my title. God uniquely has authority. Uniquely. It's an important word there. 
God uniquely has authority to judge and to punish. Nobody else has the authority that God does to punish sin. So here we go. Number one, if you're taking notes, if you're not taking notes, you should start taking notes. If you don't have something to write with, find somebody who has something to write with and something to write on sit next to them. Help them take notes. Number one, by His holiness. This is important. By His holiness. Amos chapter 4 verse 1. I'm going to have your attention right from the beginning. He says, listen to me. He's talking to Israel. Listen to me, you fat cows. Well, Brent, is that just the New Living Translation? Is he, read, is he preaching from the message? No, that's in Josh's ESV too. It's Josh's ESV. I'll explain it. Hold on. Don't lose your salvation. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. Now, what, what he's doing, very likely, very likely what is happening here. Uh, we kind of have to, we, we do interpretation in the then and there. So what would have that meant, meant then and there, not here and now? If we do the, tra- the interpretation in the here and now, we just offended half of the congregation. Uh, because you know women are incredibly sensitive to the phrase fat cow. Boy, we have a problem here. So it's very likely... Listen, it's very likely that uh, it's not intended to be a painful put down, but rather Amos is using, he's being sarcastic about how well fed and how well cared for this group of people are. Does that make sense? Not fat cow is in, I don't like that person. It's fat cow is in, you are obviously taken really good care of. Talking about the upper crust of society is kind of what he's getting at further on in the context of the verse. Okay, so we're all friends again. I did not call anybody a fat cow. Amos and God did not call anybody a fat cow, not in a demeaning way, but in a you bunch of well-taken-care-of, prosperous people in Samaria. And then he says, you woman, you women, pardon me, listen to me, you fat cows living in America. <laughs> that was totally an accident, but that was funny. Living in Samaria, you women who oppress the poor... <laughs> and crush the needy. Focus. Y'all are so distracted this morning. Listen to me. (laughs) I just hate this. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria, you women who oppress the poor. Are you picturing this? The women who oppress the poor, and they crush the needy, and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. I don't have a chance. (laughs) Amos has addressed this issue before of the upper crust of society oppressing the poor and indulging themselves in self-centered desires. Israel has experienced some economic growth. They're doing wonderful. Life is great God speaks through Amos and says, you bunch of fat cows that are putting pressure on your husband to bring you a drink. Gives you a picture, doesn't it? He's not. Now, now he is being harsh on them. You indulge your self-centered desires. You impose on your spineless husbands to cater to your self-absorbed lives. Yeah, he's taking a swing at men there. This is not a pretty picture. Did you picture it while we were reading through it? You know it's not a pretty picture. 
Verse 2, here's the contrast. So he, he sets up a picture in verse 1. Now he has this, this next picture in verse 2. He says, the sovereign Lord has sworn, everybody say sworn. It's a big word, strong word. Sovereign, Adonai, he says, the God who has authority. The God who has authority, Lord Yahweh, Jehovah, Savior, has sworn. He has made as strong of a statement as he possibly can. This, he has sworn this by his holiness. This is where I need your attention, okay? Holiness. The sovereign Lord has sworn this by his holiness. We'll come back to that in a second. This is what he's sworn. The time will come when you, the fat cows are asking their husbands to bring them drinks. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. Let's go back to the, to the first part of this. God has sworn by His holiness this is an important characteristic of God. God is sinless. The characteristic of God that is that he is he is holy, he is removed from sin. God by his nature, his character is apart from sin, removed from sin. He is his very nature, he is sinless. There's no sin in him. You get your brain around that? Big big thought. God is holy, set apart from sin to sinlessness. God is holiness. God is sinlessness. So he does sit on a moral high ground of perfection. The heaven sometimes thought they did, but not always. God actually does. Are you with me so far? God is holiness. He is sinlessness. What gives God the authority to judge and to punish? It's his sinless nature. He has no sin in him. He is holy, and he calls his children up to the character, the moral character of his holiness. We're, we're building a foundation, so I'm going to back up again. What gives God the authority to judge and punish? It's His sinless nature. He's holy. He is holy. And He calls His children, that's us, He calls His children up to His moral character of holiness. Now, what we see throughout the Old Testament, and especially studying through these prophets, is that God calls them up to His moral standard, His moral character, and what does Israel do? They fail. They're a bunch of miserable failures. So yes, God is holy. He is sinless. He has the authority because of His character and nature of holiness. He has the unique authority to judge and punish those who sin. Now, here God himself swears by his holy nature that he will punish Israel. So not only is he sinless, but he's very serious about his people being sinless. It's tough. They will be led away. 
he tells in a poetic way. He's, he's saying they're going to be led away, helpless to defend themselves, with a hook in their nose. The implication is towards slavery, as helpless as a fish pulled from the water by a hook. And at that point, I was kind of distracted and thinking about it's been springtime this last week, and boy, it's hard to stay in the office and study. Back to the text. God uses an illustration. Has anybody ever gone fishing? You know that when, as long as that fish is in the water, he can pull on the rod, right? You can pull on the line. But once you pull him out of the water, does he have power anymore? No power anymore. God is saying, Israel, there is going to come a time that I am going to make you as helpless as a fish pulled out of the water by a hook. The Israelite people will be pulled from their homes. Now, just because I'm, I'm teaching the overview of the Bible, all this is on my mind. You have these people who are in the promised land. God himself, many, many, many hundred years previous, has guaranteed, promised Abraham, I'm going to give you the land that you're standing on. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. We go through all of the history, and finally Israel gets to conquer the promised land, and they, they have Canaan, and it becomes Israel, and it's their land, and finally they have a geographic location, and they try to manage themselves and govern themselves. They do what is right in their own eyes. They sin against God. God gives them a king. They fail. He gives them another king. He gives them a bunch of kings, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail. And finally, God comes to him and he says, now, the land that I gave you, the cities and the towns, the country, the promised land, I'm going to pull you out of like a fish out of water. You with me? The next verse. He says, you will be led out through the ruins of the wall. The ruins of the wall. They've spent a bunch of time building these walls to fortify themselves, to protect themselves from the enemies, the nations that live around them that want to come in and take over them. He says, you will be led out through the ruins in the wall. The walls are going to come down. There's going to be holes in the walls. He says, you will be thrown from your fortresses, says the Lord. He's saying, your walls will not protect you. Their defenses that they have put so much faith in will fail to keep God from bringing judgment and punishment upon them. I'm going to pause for just a second because there's a great application here. Israel is living in God's promised land. Yeha and amen. Yeha? Yehu? Yehu and amen. You understand. <laughs> anyway. They're all happy. We're in God's promised land. Let's protect ourselves. So we create all these ways of protecting ourselves. You and I do it. God gave me a great job, a nice house, a nice family. I am blessed. Now I got to figure out how I'm going to fortify my blessings. How can I make myself safe? How can I be secure in Brent? Because I'm a man. Right? That's what we do. That's what Israel has done. God has blessed them abundantly. They, they are having this great prosperity. Uh, they're all good. Let's build up our fortress. Let's guard ourselves. Let's be... But they didn't deal with the sin on the, on, the, on the inside of the wall. And their fortresses that they built were not enough to keep God from coming across the wall. Listen to me. You think that you can guard your life without putting your faith in God? You're wrong. You're painfully wrong. 
It doesn't matter what kind of wall you build to defend all of the prosperity that you have in your life. If you don't have God on your side of the wall, you're on the wrong side of the wall. And God is calling his people to holiness. So he's about to come across the wall. He's going to knock the wall down and he's going to drag your sorry bottom uh, through the wall. That's what the text says. At least that's what the message says. Number two, here we go. By his holiness, it was number one. Number two, Israel loves to worship. And I put worship in quotes. You're going to love, love this because, actually, I love this because God has a great sense of humor. From time to time, he's sarcastic, like calling people fat cows. Uh, he is going to be sarcastic here in verse four. Here we go. Israel loves to worship. Number four, verse four. He says, go ahead. Other translations, it's an invitation. Come on, go ahead. Let's get together and offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel. Now, we studied that in Hosea. The idols at Bethel were what? Okay, everybody's turning back to Hosea. We're going to start all over. I'm kidding. I'm not doing Hosea again. <clears throat> nope. Golden calves. Yeah, because the first time that Israel built a golden calf and God got mad and smote them, that wasn't enough. So being geniuses, they decided to build another golden calf at Bethel. And so God is mocking them. He says, come on, Israel. Let's all get together and go offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel. Let's go bow down to that golden calf again because that's been so beneficial for you. Keep on disobeying at Gilgal. Offer sacrifices each morning. We're a bunch of worshipers. We love to worship. So let's offer sacrifices each morning and let's bring our tithes in every three days. Oh, man. Sarcastic call to worship. Come on, Israel. You are all the... We're the people of God. There's a song about that. Nobody sings it anymore. We're the people of God. God's chosen people. We're Israel. We are the sons and daughters of, of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. We're the ones. We have a pedigree. Look how good we are. We're closer to God because he's chosen us. All of you who are chosen by God, let's get together and let's worship. We're spiritual people. We're good people. We love to worship. Let's go to Bethel and we'll bow down to the golden calf. Let's go to Gilgal and let's scheme against people who are not like us. Uh-oh. Let's go and worship God. We'll worship the golden calf on Monday. We'll go to Gilgal and talk about people and scheme and be deceitful on Monday. But on Wednesday, we're all going to come together at the church. We're going to worship God. We're going to bring our sacrifices and we're going to bring our tithe because that's what the real spiritual people do and we're all the real spiritual people. So we're going to bring our tithe and we're going to show everybody our offering envelopes. Can we put my offering envelope on the overhead projector? An overhead projector. I just dated myself. <laughs> Make sure everybody knows that I give. Oh, slip it in the offering. Oh, show it a little more. <laughs> slip it in the offering box. Uh-huh. That's what's going on here. Let's go to church. Park up front so when people drive by, they see my trucks there. Oh, man, that Brent, he's at the church every day. He's a worshiper. Yeah, because we love to worship. You with me? I like the way you're looking at me. Watch what happens in the next text after God is being sarcastic with his people. Now, if you've been reading in soap, 
you read through Leviticus this last week, and you were thinking that this Leviticus has no application to anything, but it does. It has application to today's text. So see, you should have been reading Leviticus because it's all about wonderful things. Verse 5, he says, present your bread made with yeast. Now, I calmed down a little bit, so we kind of lost the momentum of everybody come to worship. Bring your offerings, your sacrifices, your tithe. That's going to be great. Present your bread made with yeast as an offering of thanksgiving. Now, if you've been doing soap, in your mind you hear that, right? The screeching sound. Something's wrong. And then he says, then give your extra volunteer offerings. Oh, so that you can brag about it to everyone. Everybody see my tithe? I don't have any money or I would, anyway, you understand. I got married at 10 o'clock. At 2 o'clock, we were leaving town, went to Burger King. I couldn't buy myself lunch. But I'm the richest man in the world. So we come and here's my tithe. I pay my tithes, become my search. Oh, looky here, got a little extra offering. A couple of extra bucks for Brent to buy hamburger. Hallelujah. Worship, worship, worship. Did everybody see I gave extra? You with me? That's what's happening. Bring your offering of thanksgiving that's tainted with yeast and then give your extra volunteer offering so that you can brag about it everywhere. This is the kind of thing you Israelites love to do. He's mocking them, and then says the sovereign Lord. This is whenever it says says the sovereign Lord, it's kind of like whenever your kids call you by your first and middle name. This is what mom says, Brentley. Sorry, mom. (laughs) This is what the sovereign Lord says, Israel. An offering of thanksgiving of bread that was made with yeast. Now, you don't have to be around Christianity very long to know that yeast in the Old Testament and yeast in the New Testament both represent what? Sin. They were making their offering and adding in a little sin. Oh, it's just a little sin. It's going to make worship a little better. Oh, God comes to them. Sovereign Lord comes to them and he says, How dare you offer unholy worship to a holy God? Why would you bring yeast into the temple of God? Why would you bring sin in the vessel of God's people to worship a holy God? What is wrong with you? Your offerings, Israel's offerings, do not come from a sacrifice of worship, but from arrogance. We're not going to give God what God wants. We're going to give God what we want to give him. And we want to give him our flagrant sin. It's not about our desire. uh, Our worship is not from a desire of giving to God. Our worship is, it comes from a desire of what we're going to get from God. I come and worship so that the world can see I'm a good guy. I come and I worship so that my friends can see that I give money to the church. I come and worship so that everybody else knows that I'm a Christian and I go to church and I do all the right stuff. Yeah. Amen, Brett. Good preaching. Okay, carry on. Yeah. Israel loves to worship. A little self-examination here as to why we love to worship. Indeed, instead, pardon me, I have a reading problem. Instead of giving a perfect sacrifice, like we've been instructed throughout Leviticus, 
Instead of giving a perfect sacrifice to a holy God, one with no yeast and with no blemishes, Israel loves to mix their worship with a little sin, a little unholy sacrifice for a holy God. And the sovereign Lord calls foul. Number three, here we go. Judged and punished, but no repentance. Judged and punished, but no repentance. God has already disciplined Israel for their sins. As we've gone through these minor prophets, as you go through the major prophets, we see over and over God punishes them. They say, oh, we're going to make it right this time, God. And then what do they do? They're back in the auditorium with their tithe envelope. Hey, everybody, I got some offering. It's good. Put it all in. Yep, they're back to their, their heathenistic sinful worship. They're back to no good. They're back to sin. They're back to bowing down to their golden calves. God has disciplined Israel for their sin, but they have not changed their behavior, and they will not return to Him. That's significant. God is not punishing them just for the sake of punishing them. He's punishing them because He wants them to come back to Him and to live in a right relationship with Him. Are you with me? God is not just a vindictive, mean God. God desperately wants to be in a right relationship with you. He's so desperate to be in a right relationship with you that He would die to be in a relationship with you. Are you with me? So it's not just being mean. All right, verse verse 6 is where we're at. God. He says uh, he's going to judge them. He promised. He says, as the sovereign Lord, I'm going to drag you out with a fish hook and you're going to be as powerless as a fish out of water. He says, I brought hunger to every city. Trying to get their attention. I brought hunger to every city and famine to every town, but still you would not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 7. I kept the rain from falling when your crops needed it the most. Wow, God, that's pretty tough. We work and we work and we work and you keep the rain so the, the crops don't grow. He says, I sent rain on one town, but then I withheld it from another. Rain fell on one field while another field withered away. Verse 8, people staggered from town to town looking for water, but there was never enough. Can you put yourself in that situation? And it's no fun to go without. I think I've told, uh, do we have time for a story? Sure, we have time for a story. Uh, once upon a time, I was very, very poor. Uh, it was whenever I first started in ministry, and uh, I was uh, heating up my leftover refried beans and my last taco shell with a little bit of grated cheese. You know, in the microwave, you stick it in there and make a tostado at my house, which, by the way, is my favorite. Uh, we can, you, you can, you need a lot of elaborate things, but boy, you put refried beans on a taco, on a flat uh, chip and with some cheese and oh, hallelujah. <laughs> We're talking, it's a spiritual encounter. So I, uh, I have my last little beans. I really was, I was dirt poor. My mom didn't know this. And so now later she's going to feel really sorry for me. Uh, I, I'm sitting at my table, little table in my apartment and I, uh, it's a a chair with wheels, and so I, I turn in the chair, and I open up the microwave, and I grabbed it. Whenever I grabbed it, it was hot, so I dropped it on the floor. No, I didn't need it anyway. But I remember crying. Yeah, it's funny now. 
But when you have nothing, I cried. It was not funny. So I read this text, and I'm thinking, oh, man, God is, imagine men. You go home, and there's no food in your house, and there's no water in your faucet. And you have children who are depending on you taking care of them. You go out to the garden. The water hose hasn't worked in two weeks. And in New Mexico, that garden is brown. It doesn't have to work for two weeks. It's in 24 hours, and it's gone. Yeah. What are you going to do, Israel? God's trying to get your attention. He's taken everything away from you so that you'll pay attention to him, so that you will return to me, is what he's saying. I'm not bringing this, I'm not bringing famine on you, and I'm not bringing drought on you just to be mean. I'm trying to get your attention so that you'll turn to God. He says, but you still would not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 9, he says, I struck your farms and vineyards with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured all your fig and olive trees, but still you would not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 10, he says, I sent plagues on you like the plagues I sent on Egypt long ago. Now he's treating them like the heathens over in Egypt. I sent plagues on you like, uh, like the plagues I sent to Egypt long ago. I killed your young men in war. Whoa, going out, going without a tostado, that's one thing. But whenever you start killing our kids, that's... How bad does it have to be? How great does the pain have to be before we sit up and say, the Lord God Almighty is serious about dealing with sin in our lives? He says, I kill your young men in war and led all of your horses away. The stench of death filled the air? It's not what you want. But still, you would not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 11. He says, I destroyed some of your cities. I destroyed, as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, they were in sin. God rained down fire and hellfire and brimstone, destroyed them. Those of you who survived were like charred sticks pulled from a fire. There's a picture. And then again, Amos. He's pleading with Israel by the power of God in him. He says, but you still would not return to me, says the Lord. What does God have to do to get our attention? God wants Israel to return to a right, a holy relationship with him. I'm waiting. You'll make the connection. God desperately wants Israel to return to a right, holy relationship with God himself. God wants them to behave like the chosen children of God that he intended them to be. God wants them to be holy as he is holy. Well, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. God doesn't want them to continue on in the misery of sin. He doesn't want them to continue on in the misery of his judgment. He wants to call them to a higher moral plane where they will have the nature of God, the holiness of God, the sinlessness of God, and live life abundantly. That's what he wants. God's authority. Hmm. Number four, here we go. 
judgment and punishment again. So he's judged them and punished them, and there was no repentance. So he tells them, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring famine, I'm going to bring drought, it's going to get worse. So here we are, number four, judgment and punishment again. He says, therefore, because God is about to return and bring judgment, he's going to drag them out the wall again. Therefore, I will bring upon you all the disasters that I have announced. All the things that he said he's going to do, now he's about to do this again. Prepare to meet your God in judgment, you people of Israel. Now, if you are an Israelite listening to Amos proclaim the word of the Lord, this is not, oh, yay, God's coming to meet us. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Amos says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, prepare to meet your God in judgment. You should be terrified. So, God is going to judge and punish Israel Again, for the same purpose of getting Israel to return to him again. We've gone through this process, through this cycle of of repentance and sin and punishment and repentance and sin and punishment and sin and repentance. You understand. It's gone on several times. I mean, maybe it's just me, but... This punishment thing is not working very well. It's not working well for God because he's not getting the result that he wants. It's not working well for Israel. Ask any of them. No, it's no good. We're tired of being punishment. What Israel needs, they need a transformation of their heart. They don't need another beating. You know, raising kids, you you learn that sometimes a spanking is appropriate. Sometimes sitting them down and saying, Here's the character problem. You need a change of heart. Then they go, oh, now I understand why I've been getting the beatings. <laughs> ah, the light comes on. Ding. Yeah. Sometimes punishment is appropriate. Sometimes just some good character-changing wisdom is appropriate. And Israel's at a place here where I don't think that they, they have nothing left to take. They've got nothing. God's taken, he stripped everything away from them, including the land that he gave them, that he promised to them, that he divinely handed to them. I think that what they need is a, they need a change of character. They need a change of heart. If God wants them to be holy, like God is holy, then God needs, I think God needs a better plan. (laughs) I know God's in charge. He gets to make the rules, but this whole punishment thing's not working. He needs a better plan. What God needs is a plan. Just think with me. What God needs is a plan that puts His character and His nature inside of fallen, sinful humanity. Yeah, instead of trying to get the change from the outside, we'll put the change on the inside. You with me? Instead of trying to beat Israel into submission, let's put holiness inside of them and then see if they act holy. I'm not trying to tell God how to do His job, but seems to me that God is asking a lot from frail, fallen, sin-filled mankind. If mankind has proved anything in our existence, we have proven that from Adam on, we are determined to sin. Aren't we? No amens? <laughs> I'm afraid to say amen now. 
Yeah. Give us the opportunity to sin. We will. Yeah. It is as though everything in our flesh, and science is even proving that in our DNA, wants to sin. We are born with a propensity to sin. If you don't believe me, hang out in the nursery. How many of us had to teach our children to be selfish? No. How many of us had to teach our children to be rebellious and defiant? No. It comes naturally. Every fiber of their being says, I will not submit to authority. Every fiber of their being says, who are you to judge me? And then we grow up and we look at God and we say, who are you to judge me? If God wants us to act like him, watch this. If God wants us to act like him, then he needs some way of, say, uh, causing our sinful nature to die. And then, and then what we need, we need our sinful nature to die, right? But then we need like, to be reborn, um, not into sin. We've done that before. That's, that's not profitable. We don't want to be, we want to die to sin, to be reborn, not of sin, but say be born uh, by His Spirit. Oh, that's a good idea. God should run with this one. Yeah, if we could be born, if there was a way for God to, say, become a man and walk on earth so He knows what I'm like and the pain that I have, but then uh, there would have to be the death of the flesh and the sinful nature and all of that jazz, but then, but then if He was to rise again, or at least His Holy Spirit, if, if, he could, if that man could be raised by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit, I'm just thinking this through while I'm talking, you guys... Um, Think, think with me. But if, if it was possible for God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to be able to come and live in the fullness of God in Brent Hedden, then maybe I could be holy as God is holy. Anybody? I'm just saying that's an idea that I had. I don't know if God will go with it. Um, but it just seems that this behavior modification that, that God is trying to accomplish with Israel... Um, it's not working. We don't need behavior modification. What we need is a state of being transformation, right? We need the, we need a, uh, the old things are gone and new is come and, and, and we have a new creation. That's, that's my idea, but I don't know. I have a limited idea sometimes. So we need a new creation in, in you and me. Uh, that seems like a more powerful, more productive plan than just punishing the old nature over and over. So if only there was some way of imparting the holy nature of God. Are you following me? If there was a way of imparting God's holy nature into sinful man, then we would be holy as He is holy. Man, that's good. All right. Uh, so we, therefore, verse 12, he says, therefore, I bring upon you, I'm going to bring all these disasters on you. Uh, prepare to meet your maker. That's not really what it says, but kind of got the idea. Number five, here we go. God alone has authority. I'm going to get excited here in a minute. God alone has authority. Say it with me. God alone has authority. That, that's a huge theological statement. God alone has authority. So, okay, seriously, I want you to engage your imagination here and picture what is going on in this verse because here's the reason that God has authority or another reason that God has authority to make his people holy. Well, I don't want to be holy. Well, you're not God. 
uh, God made you, that makes you subservient to him whether or not you like it. So who are you to judge? He's the one who is sinless and holy. He gets to be the judge. So we either submit to his authority and live happily ever after, or we reject his authority, and then we have a serious problem. So here in verse 13, we're going to see another reason that God has a unique, holy authority to make you and I holy. Do you want to be holy? I'm feeling a little resistance here. Some of you are like, I don't know about this holiness thing. That means I'm going to have to stop. Whoa, hey, take it easy. Uh, verse 13, he says, For the Lord, everyone say, Lord. Oh, good. This is, For the Lord is the one who shaped the mountains. Man, we live by the Rockies. That's so cool. I was driving, uh, probably across Crouch Mesa. I don't know, every time I drive across Crouch Mesa, you have all these mountains out there with the snow on them. I tell you what, I don't know how you look out there and just, even on Crouch Mesa, you want to pull over and just say, there is a God. It's gorgeous. It is. For the Lord, for the Lord is the one who shaped the mountains, stirs up the winds. Are you with me? Got your imagination going? For the Lord is the one... He doesn't share this. The Lord is the one who shaped the Rockies, stirs up the winds in West Texas, and reveals his thoughts to mankind. He, the Lord, turns the light of dawn, imagine the sun coming up, into darkness. The sun goes down. And treads on the heights of the earth. Did you picture that? <laughs> and then he says, The Lord God of heaven's armies is his name. <laughs> Are you with me? He's, he says, This is the Lord who's coming to punish you because of your sin, because he desperately wants you to be in a holy relationship with him. And we're not just talking about some God who looks like a golden calf and can't talk and cannot move and cannot answer with prayers. We're talking about the Lord who shaped the mountains. We're talking about the Lord who stirs up the winds on the earth. We're talking about the Lord who puts thoughts in the mind of a man. You thought, you thought, you thought, you thought independently. You don't think independently. The Lord puts thoughts in the mind of a man. The Lord is who commands the light of dawn and the darkness of dust. Only God does that. Because if God removes himself from the solar system, your sun's not going to shine, sweetheart. The Lord is the one who treads on the heights of the earth. Uh, of all of this, I think that this is the one that just uh, sparks a picture in my mind because, um, you know, you go out and go fishing in the river and you're on the bank and you don't have your waders and so you're hopping from rock to rock in the river, right? <laughs> We're talking fishing now. He's hopping from rock to rock, trying to not get his feet wet. This is the Lord. How big is the Lord? How big is God? Well, here's how big he is. The Lord treads on the heights of the earth. He's standing on the Rockies, and he hops over to the Appalachians. Actually, it's west, so it's this way. And then, or east. 
Uh, and then he's got to cross the ocean to get to, I don't, I, I ran out of geography already. Uh, but you understand my point. Amos is trying to make the point to the Israelite people. This is the God who is creator of all. He is God over all. He has authority over all. You have nothing. He is the Lord God of heaven's armies as if God needs an army. He has authority. He has authority to judge. He has authority to bring you into a right relationship with him. There is no other who can claim the authority over heaven and earth that the Lord God has demonstrated. He's not just saying he has authority. He's demonstrated his authority over the earth as creator, as God above all gods. Only Yahweh, the Savior, has the authority and the power to set right the brokenness of humanity. Only the Lord has authority and the creative redemptive power to transform what has been tarnished and broken by sin into a holy vessel fit for use on the table of the king. We have this picture of a clay pot. Just for the trash. We just put the trash in it. And it's got a big break in it. It's cracked. It's about to fall apart. It's not any good. In fact, it's probably going to get put in the trash heap next time we go to the trash with this little clay pot. A holy God comes along. He's been out hill hopping. <laughs> and he goes, there's a vessel that I'm going to make Holy. I'm going to take it away from its uh, ignoble purposes. It's, it's just been used for trash, but now I'm going to use it to hold the guacamole on my table. <laughs> but I don't do clay pots on my table. I do golden vessels, and they have to be recreated. They have to be set apart from sin, set apart to holiness, set apart for use in the kingdom of God, set apart for use in, on the table of God himself. God says, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to pull you out of sin and bring you into the perfect, righteous, holy character and nature of God himself. If God has the authority to cause the mountains to rise up out of the sea, then he has the authority to bring his people back to a holy relationship with himself. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, love your word. Love your word. Love when you speak to our hearts, when you challenge us. We love when you give us hope, when you, when you reveal yourself to us and you say, come and be with me. Lord, we surrender ourselves wholly and completely to you. We surrender ourselves to your authority to transform our hearts, to transform our minds. We surrender ourselves to you, God, that you would make us a new creation for your honor and for your glory. Lord, I pray for this, this group of people. You know what's going on in every heart in this room, Lord. I pray that if hearts are resistant and rebellious against you, that you will show them that you want to recreate them for your glory, that you have only good things and positive things and blessings for them. 
Lord, I pray for all of us that have been raised in church and we, we come to church. I pray for you would just renew your word in our hearts, renew a desire for your holiness in our lives. Lord, as we surrender ourselves to your authority, as we let go of the sinfulness of this world and we hold on tight to the holiness of our Lord and King, of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we just love you and we thank you. Be glorified and be praised in all that we do. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.